We can get anything delivered from furniture to toilet paper. And now, adult beverages with Drizzly. Drizzly lets you compare prices from local liquor stores on a huge selection of beer, wine, and spirits, then get them delivered right to your door in under 60 minutes. And right now, Drizzly's giving all new customers $5 off their first order. Just enter promo code EASY5 at checkout. Download the Drizzly app or go to drizzly.com. That's D-R-I-Z-L-Y dot com. Hello and welcome to the Football Grad Podcast. I'm your host, Manu F. And as always, I'm joined by Andrew Flint in Siberia. How's it going over there? Still nice and cold? Still tons of snow there? Well, actually, I was just watching the news tonight and they're complaining that there's a lack of snow over here at the moment. Um, I'm not sure what they're talking about. It's still cold, but otherwise I'm good. Um, glad to be back on with you guys. Yeah, snow, Tim. Uh, Tim is always what? joining me. Yeah, yeah, we, we got snow report. Did you see that? I, I got the local, the local message and they're saying snow. It's, <laughs> it's almost March. This is not supposed to happen. No, no, no. Yeah, there was a, yeah, it was a couple of days ago. There was snow. Uh, but that was gone in like 12 hours. So it's great. Life is great. Uh, can't wait for summer and we have a very interesting pod coming up. Yeah, we do have a very interesting podcast coming up. And- um, no snow on the island, by the way, Tim. So there you go. Anyways, oh. joining us, joining us today, a very, very special guest. Um, he has been part of the Football Grad Network pretty much, I think, four years now and has been writing lots and lots of articles, mostly on Ukrainian football. Vadim Fomonov. Vadim, it's so great to have you on this podcast. How are you doing? Good. How are you? It's great to be here. Yeah, it's fantastic to have you on. I'm trying to remember, when was the first time you ever wrote for Football Grad? That must have been like 2013, 2014? Uh, it was 2014 when Jordan Moritz were, were uh, not allowed to play in Odessa anymore. That's the first thing I wrote. Wow, that's four years ago. It's been a long time. We only had you, and this is only your second podcast. We have to work on this, Vadim. Absolutely. Well, now this is a, a good time for me. <laughs> fantastic, fantastic news. Well, boys, we're going to talk a bit about Ukrainian football today, actually quite a lot. But um, before we do that, we have we have some homework um, to deal with. And then, uh, this is the latest transfers. Yes, there is still transfers going on in the, the Russian Football Premier League. And I feel like I'm going to go um, with you, Andrew, on this one. Uh, Sinead acquired. And we sort of we sort of sensed this would happen um, last week already. Um, Nibulin and then also Ostoyev from Ruben Kazan. And this seems like Ruben Kazan is, is clearing house or making way to, to free up some uh, some money. Um, what do you make of this, Andrew? Well, I'm not, like you say, I'm not surprised really. Zenit have made a habit of it in recent months, haven't they, of, of signing the best young Russian talent. And I've I got to be honest, I think the Osdorf transfer in particular is a bit of an odd one, really, because that's one, probably the one area they really don't need to strengthen in um, central midfield. Um, you know, I, I, it just, I don't really see the logic behind that because it wasn't even as if, you know, CSK Spartak was sniffing around Osdorf because he's not been not been in very good form this season, really. I'd say about a couple of years ago, two or three two or three seasons ago, I would have said, yeah, that made a bit more sense because his you know his, his form's good and he was in demand, really. Um, Nabulin makes a bit more sense, I guess. Krishito's what thirty two now. Um, he's not going to be around forever, um, and he even mentioned that he would be tempted if an offer from Italy came in. Um, so Nabulin for the long term at left back makes sense. Osdiv, not so much for me, really, to be honest. Um, to be honest, I think it's more interesting from the other's perspective, from Rubin's perspective. Um, Christian Naboa going in the other direction, I actually think is a great signing for Rubin. Um, they could really do with his creativity. So um, perhaps it's not actually the worst transfer window um, of all from Rubin. Um, they might do quite well out of it. Yeah, it's it's an interesting one though, right, Chris? Big, um, sorry, Tim, because um, Nabor is going the other way. So is Ostoyev the replacement 
um, going the other way. It's it seems like the, that's the whole idea behind this transfer. Uh, but uh, to be quite honest, really, I don't know. Like the only thing is like that Dostoyev has a Russian passport. But to me, I think that uh, Naboa is a better player than Dostoyev. Uh, so to me, it's the only the way I see that is really maybe he's younger and then he has a Russian passport mm. and mm, Zenit they mm, they had issues with uh, the number of Russian players on the field so this is how I see it but to be quite honest I don't see um, Zenit has a very strong uh, squad and I don't see uh, Azdoev being a really like a, an available addition I agree with Andrew that Nabil in the building yes again the Russian passport plus he has been a talented Russian uh, defender for a while and uh, yeah with uh, Krishito I think his uh, his contract is coming up for renewal eventually like fairly soon so maybe they decided not to renew his contract and uh, this is kind of like a medium medium term replacement so I same with Andrew I get uh, the idea mm-hmm. behind the um, Nabilin transfer, Azdoev transfer, I'm not sure, but, you know, if they're doing, they must know what they're doing. There's a need, you know? Yeah, hey, well, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> we'll, we'll, we'll leave it at that. Um, there's also a crazy rumor going around that Sami Nasri could join Zenit. What do you make of that, Tim? Uh, well, uh, I don't think it's going to be, if, if that happens, first of all, I don't think this will happen. I think it's a fairly crazy rumor, but uh, if it happens, uh, Nasri, he has been out of form and hasn't been playing for a while. His spell at Sevilla couldn't be uh, really described as a successful one than when he played in Turkey, and we can't really didn't really hear much about him. Um, and uh, you know the the the, the strikers, uh, the, the the players in that area that Zenit has, um, I am I don't think he will be an, a replacement. Um, sp- speaking of Saint Petersburg, uh, looks like Dynamo finally got rid of uh, Pogrebniak. Mm-hmm. And he will be joining Tosno, but uh, Tosno they don't they have the ban on registering new players for some financial issues. So it looks like he will be joining Tosno. According to them, uh, his salary went down ten times compared to what he had uh, in Dynamo. But he still wants uh, to keep playing. And um, looks like if uh, Tosno will solve their financial issues, he will be uh, playing for Tosno in the second half of the season. Well, they need a striker now that they sold all their yeah. strikers, right? So <laughs> um, it makes makes kind of sense. Um, the Speaking of strikers, um, Rubin also signed Mogilevic, right? That's the, the, other, the other news. Um, uh, makes sense. They, they're all kind of BDF players. Naboa, Migulevic, they all have worked with him before in the past. And then, of course, yeah, Tosno. Progrebnir is such an interesting one because he did play um, for Sinit before mm-hmm. he went to Europe. So maybe like a bit of a homecoming. Of course, Tosno are not playing in Tosno. They're playing in St. Petersburg. It's a bit of an odd one for me. But um, maybe a bit of a homecoming for Progrebnir. Yeah. Yeah. No, we'll, we'll keep an eye on that. Anyways, guys, um, that sums it up. Is there any other transfers that, that, that we missed? Uh, Andrew, Tim, anything that we, we kind of glance, need to glance over or can we jump right into the Europa League action? You know, there's, there's just one I'm going to have to mention. I've got to get this one out of the way because it's painful and I'm not, sh- I don't believe it's actually gone through yet, but it looks likely that it will is, um, a player from my hometown, Pavel Shakuro, going yes. to Tim's club, Spartak yes. Moscow. Um, be quiet, Tim. Be quiet. I don't, it's painful <laughs> enough, okay? Um, no, but actually, semi-seriously, you know, we talk about Nabiulin as a left-back uh, for the future. Now, that's a solid That's a solid buy by Zenit because he's got experience in the top flight. Um, but Shakuro, who's been playing for, for Chuman, he's come through a youth system and he's he's clearly a class above Chuman. I, I don't mind saying that. Um, but, you know, it's you know, the, this, this is a sort of transfer that, I mean, without you know, I've got to I've got to try and be objective about this. I really hope Spartak are doing it for the right reasons. If the transfer does go through, because if he ends up going to Spartak and waiting three or four years to get into the team and being farmed out to Spartak Dubal and Chiman in the meantime are left without one of their best players, it really could be a difference between us being able to attract new players and survive. But on the positive note. A Russian, uh, Russian youth international. He is a fantastic player going forward, um, even as a teenager in a fairly rough league, the Fenel. Um, Shakur is showing he, he showed composure from the first game he played. Um, great going forward with the ball. So if Spartak do end up wrapping up that transfer, then I will I will shed a few tears. But um, Tim, you look after him, okay? You promise? 
Sounds good. I promise. I Quincy promise you. All right. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Well, that, that, that sums it up for us in this department. Um, that Yanks is be able to jump into the Europa League action. We're not going to spend too much time on this. Um, because there's, of course, second legs and the second legs on Thursday. And once those are wrapped up and we know the, the next round, we're going to spend a bit more detail on this. But, um, quickly, guys. Some interesting results, some better than others, right, Tim? Um, but don't worry, we'll get to you in due time. But uh, let's start with Red Star uh, versus, versus CSKA. Um, Svrina Svetsta, of course, uh, for for those who try liking to use the um, the Serbian version of the name. Um, they played on Tuesday because Partizan played on Thursday, right? Also at home. And then, of course, uh, the return leg is on Wednesday because there is... Um, two other Moscow teams playing on Thursday in Moscow as well. So they, they have to mix it up a bit. Um, so Andrew, this is the game that you previewed. Um, thoughts on the 0-0? Zero, zero? Yeah, I, th- I think 0-0, zero, zero, nil, nil, good, good result um, for Tiska. And I honestly do believe they controlled the game in the first leg. So yes, they didn't get the away goal. That's the one, one minus, I guess. But I think they can genuinely come into the home leg fairly, fairly confident um, without going overboard. Uh, they've got to, they've realistically got to try, they've got to score. There's no way they can go for a nil-nil at home because that can be dangerous. But um, yeah, I mean, Red Star, they, they've barely scored or conceded this European campaign. So I genuinely don't see them being a huge threat in front of goal. As long as Tesca can get, get an early goal in the first half, Settle in, control the game. I genuinely am I'm confident about this this tie for, for outside Tesca. Um but nil nil away from home, good result, not bad. Yeah, the the danger is always the conceding the away goal on the second leg, right? Um a one one, two two, three three, four four, etc. 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 means you out. Um so the moment of tech well, Cisca have to win this game, period. End of story. Be it um all the way to penalties if it goes out zero zero. Tim, your thoughts on this? Um, yeah, like I said, like in the preview, I, I was thinking that Tesca uh, will score an away goal. They didn't, uh, but still, I think they're in control of the situation. They will be playing at home. Hopefully, people will show up. And like I said, generally Tesca is a better team. Um, the the atmosphere on the stadium was unbelievable. Mm-hmm. There was a massive banner so uh, about the friendship between uh, Red Star and Spartak. Uh, fans. Um, so yeah, it was good experience, but I think Seska should do it. Like they're just a better team than uh, Cervena Zvezda. Yeah, I go along with that. I think Seska will be through to the next round and which is good news for us because then we get to preview it and enjoy some more football. So that's, um, I, I'll go with you too. And I think I'm going to, they're going to go through. Uh, that gets us to the next game and Astana versus Sporting. Um, the result looks bad. <laughs> One three for Sporting. In Astana, this has been a place that's been very difficult to play and for teams traveling there because the, the journey from uh, Lisbon to Astana is actually 6,400 kilometers, time difference five hours. Um, so this is even for us, Tim, here in North America, that's, that's a big yeah. distance. Uh, we always laugh about this, but you know, we have, we, we have big uh, distances to travel in North America too. And when we, when we cover the white caps, we, we, we often say how much they have to travel, but this puts everything into perspective. Um, Astana did well. I thought actually I watched this game and I thought they actually did a lot better than the result suggests. But in the end of the day, I think the winter break is what hurt them. That long winter break, they wrapped up their season in, uh, early December, late November, actually, sorry, and, uh, won the championship in, Ka- in Kazakhstan and, um, they're now getting ready for the 2018 season. So this, the, the legs weren't there for them. And I'm pretty sure that tie will be, um, all wrapped up when it comes goes back to um Lisbon uh, on Thursday great outing though i think for for Kazakhstan's football it's definitely growing right andrew oh yeah absolutely um and you know actually i genuinely wasn't i wasn't overly surprised uh when they when they took the lead um and i i kind of held out to hope that they might they might at least keep it to a draw and make at least make sporting nervous mm. in the return leg but you know, I mean, look, Astana, they've got to be proud because this is a record-breaking season. You yeah. know, a Kazakh side in the knockout stages. And 
I mean, it, it, you, you're at risk of sounding patronising when you say that, but I genuinely mean that. I'm, I'm delighted to see them there because now clubs will just ever so slightly start to think, hang on a minute, we've got to take them more seriously um, before Kazakh opposition would have been practically laughed at and thought, oh, well, there's a guaranteed three points. But they've shown this season that they won't just roll over. So, I, I mean, it's, let's be perfectly honest, there's basically no way for them to go through at this stage. But... You know, they've given a good account of themselves and and uh, I think it's the long-term implications that have been the major victory here for them uh, and those will be valuable for hopefully years to come. So, yeah, congratulations to them so far. Yeah, absolutely. I, I would definitely go along with that. Um, Tim, that unfortunately brings us to the next game. <laughs> yeah, what happened there? What, 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 what went wrong for Spartak? Wow, that was such a weird game, my friends. Uh, Spartak was playing well, not great, but we were playing well. We had chances, we had the possession, it was going well. And then we made three mistakes and we conceded three goals. It was such a strange game. I have no idea how to describe it. Because really, like, it didn't look, it, like, the score doesn't, like, same with, like, Astana. It doesn't really suggest how the game went. Um... Yeah, like there was, there was three mistakes we made and those are pretty bad mistakes. Uh, the second goal was really unlucky because the, the ball hit the wall and it hit twice and then bounced off to uh, Duris, I believe it was, or wh whoever scored the goal. Um, it was just really like um, a strange game. Like I said, Spartak didn't play great, but Spartak played well enough and it, it, well enough to at least get a tie in this game. And um, the second half, uh, the second half, the team won. Um, one nothing because they considered three in the first half. So it was to me it was a very strange game. And uh, but obviously like the winter break didn't help because like uh, Quincy Promise was just anonymous. He wasn't really he didn't really do anything. Uh, I would say Luis Adriano and Andrei Yeshenko were the play best players. So to conclude, really, it's, um, it's a very strange game and. That kind of gives me a little hope that maybe not everything is lost and maybe there is a little bit of chances, but at the same time, really, considering three goals at home, like, what are you doing, my friends? You have to score three unanswered goals in yeah. Bilbao, Tim. Um, I did the, the preview for the return and um, Bilbao have won eight out of their last nine home matches. Um, yeah. The only team that's actually won there recently, and Vadim, that I'm going to bring you in really briefly for this, is Soya Luhansk. And so it is possible, right? It is. Uh, unfortunately, they didn't end up making it out of the group stage, but there were some impressive performances by them. Yeah, so it is. that is maybe the one beacon of hope <laughs> that you can actually get a win. Um, yeah. At the if, you're football grad, if you're a football grad team, you can get a win. So Okay, well, we'll, we'll, we'll keep our fingers crossed, although I don't I, I, my personally gut instinct says that, yeah, I'm sorry, Tim, but well, Spartak will have to focus on the, the, the league campaign and the cup, um, of the, of the Thursday night. Um, another team that looked like they were going out, Andrew, were Lokomotiv. And this game, this game was spectacular at the very least against Nice. And then now take a two, three lead back home to Moscow. Um, they, they won the game and they have three away goals. Um, probably a very good chance of going through, right? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And I really did not see that coming at all. And yeah, okay, you know, you, they, people will point to the red card, but you've got to remember the red card was only with, yes, it was when they were still losing. So they got the two goals to, to take the win back after Nice went down to 10 men, but they'd already got that. They'd already won that penalty back. Uh, right on the stroke of half time. Um, it's a funny one, really, because you look, got some some seriously dangerous players. Balotelli is getting, if not back to his best when he was a nineteen year old, at least somewhere near his his decent form. Um, he's on almost a goal a game, I think it is now um, this season, and he's definitely going to be a danger um, in, in Moscow on Thursday. Um, I wrote the preview for this one and I, I actually do generally think he's, he's going to be a dangerous player here. Um, but Christ, I mean, Manuel Fernandez has been on just such wonderful form, um, for the best part of 18 months, almost two seasons now. Um, and he's just, his right foot is so precise, so reliable that you just, you almost feel like a free kick is a penalty for him. Um, and, 
yeah, what a what a what a result though. I mean, what a result back in Moscow now. I I genuinely think that's uh, that's that's going to be not the safest game. I actually am more confident about CSKA. I know it's going to sound strange with the away goals and the, and the lead, but um, I actually do think uh, I think Lokomotiv are definitely going to make it through. So, like you say, we could really be looking at three uh, three Russian sides through, um, which would be absolutely fantastic. And uh, yeah, from a greedy point of view, I hope to go to more knockout games in the future. But um, yeah, Lokomotiv, brilliant, absolutely brilliant. I'm actually going to stay right with you, Andrew, because you're going to the next game that we're going to talk about. And this is Celtic versus Zenit. Not the best result at the Paradise. Uh, defeat is not the end of the world, right? Uh, by one goal, but not scoring an away goal. Um, how big of a factor do you think this is going to be? Um, basically, yeah. any any victory by Zenit, by only one goal, if they concede, would mean they're out. Well, it's. I think this is a really, really tough one because it depends. Um, it depends how much faith Mancini has in his players. That's what it comes down to for me. Uh, you know, on paper, you look at their squad and they they have easily, easily have the attacking talents to to really take the game to Celtic and uh, and take them on. The the Krestovsky is sold out. The home fans section at least is sold out. So that's going to be sixty thousand fans there. I mean, Celtic Park is an intimidating atmosphere, but you know, don't tell me the Kostovsky isn't. I mean, the acoustics in there, the the amount of the fans being there, welcoming Celtic over to Russia. It's, it's the the Bay of Finland is frozen right outside the Kostovsky right now. It, the atmosphere is going to be really getting to them too. So um, that away goal, uh, this is Zenit. We know what they're like in the knockouts. Mm. Um, there is always that danger. All it takes is one, and then suddenly the entire night becomes nerve-wracking. Um, what I will say is, though, um, that you know Celtic were the better side, certainly. I think Zenit did well to come away relatively unscathed because they really weren't in the game for pretty much the entire 90 minutes. Celtic were energetic. They were buoyed by the atmosphere. But you take that away, reverse that situation completely, and... The, uh, the odds are stacked on, on Zenit's side. I, I'm confident that Zenit will go through, um, but I don't think they're going to make it easy for themselves because, well, frankly, there's Zenit. There was always that tendency to crumble. But um, Celtic away from home without an away goal for the opposition, you imagine they're going to sit back. Um, it'll be tough, but I do think Zenit are going to go through. I really do. Yeah, I, I am on the fence on this one. Um, I, we... Definitely looking forward to that and looking forward to, to your, um, match report that's coming, um, on footballground.com following the match. You're flying to St. Petersburg, um, pretty much following this podcast, right, Andrew? Uh, well, in a, in 12 hours time, I'll be in the air going to Moscow first, mm -hmm. then getting the train over. I'm, I'm going to go on Capital FM, uh, radio, going to go to the studio tomorrow night. Uh, and then after that, get the train. Um, spend all day in St. Petersburg and then match report in the evening. Yeah, so that will be coming your way in footballgrad.com. So take, keep your eye peeled on that one. Um, the next match, Vadim, Ike, Dynamo, Kiev. Um, Kiev did get the away goal. This is a good result for them, isn't it? It is. And probably one that it didn't really deserve. Uh, you know, they took the lead in the first half with a really well worked goal. And it's nice to see it's on Kovgrad on the score sheet again, but really they were on the back foot for most of the match. And, you know, Hatskevich was complaining about the refereeing, but if we're being honest, both Harmash and Hachiridi were lucky not to be sent off in the first half, mm. which is something that we've said many times in many matches. Yeah, there is always a bit of a discipline issue with with uh, Dynamo Kiev, it seems. Um, do you reckon, I mean, this game is now going back to to Ukraine, right? And, um, Dinamo now had a match day and we're going into the match days in Ukrainian Premier League in just a moment. But having now played this game in Athens, having played a game on the weekend, is that going to really help them in the second leg? I mean, I, I hope so. This is always the case. We talk about, about this every year with, you know, Soviet teams playing in Europe in the, in the playoff stages, always rusty, you know, no, no, uh, competitive matches beforehand. Uh, now they have one under two, well, one in the Europa League and one in the Ukrainian Premier League under their belt. Maybe that'll help in the second in the second leg. Uh, I'm not particularly confident about it, just based on the performance. And 
it probably won't be very intimidating for IK Athens, to be honest, in, in Kiev. I'm not expecting a big crowd and it's still very cold. Yeah, well, that's something that we we highlighted with the, the Schachter game and, and the preview that I wrote is that um, I think the temperatures on, on Wednesday night for the Schachter game are going to be minus 7 degrees in Kharkiv. I assume it's not going to be much warmer in, in Kiev either. So um, it's the Olympiski is a very, very nice stadium. It's actually the stadium, the first stadium I ever covered a professional football game. And as a journalist and it's, it's a nice stadium, but it can be also very empty if there is not, um, you know, if it doesn't reach a certain threshold, anything underneath 30,000 people makes the stadium feel very empty, doesn't it, Vadim? Yeah. And the weather can cut both ways because, you know, obviously a Greek team isn't used to playing in these conditions, but at the same time, if it keeps all the supporters away, your, you know, your uh, mm. home field advantage is basically lost. Yeah, absolutely. So what's your, what's your prediction for this one? Uh, second leg. Uh, I'm going to say 1-1 one, one in extra time. And then after that, I'm not making any predictions. Okay, well, fair enough. Well, but I'm we're actually going to stay on the topic. And because this is actually an advantage. And um, Tim, this is something that we've talked about so much. is the fact that in the, the Russian Football Premier League, um, the winter break, right? The Russian teams have to play basically the first two legs of the Europa League as their first matches. Now, Ukraine is slightly more west, slightly further south. So they started their, their first match day um, this weekend. How big of an advantage do you think that is actually being able, okay, well, it's not great because you have to still play that first leg in Europe, right? But having that extra game in smacked in between already as, a, as in a regular season, is that a huge advantage for Ukrainian teams over Russian teams? Well, I wouldn't call it a huge advantage, but it's definitely an advantage because you have a competitive match uh, in under your belt. And um, but again, like uh, what kind of match? Because Shakhtar won five nothing against Chernomorets, and it looked like I watched the highlights. It looked like it was like less less intense than the training for them. Mm. So it depends what kind of game you're getting. Also, I watched uh, Zarya played. Uh, against Karpaty, and they played in a field covered in snow. I don't think also you can get much out of that. But at the same time, you know, definitely any competitive match is a, even just that whole preparation. If you have to to travel a little bit, and then you getting into that, uh, you know, the the day of the game mode, it gets you, it it gets a little bit. So I won't call it a huge advantage, but it definitely helps. The more games you have before you play any serious Europa League matches, of course, it's it's better. And no friendly game can replace a, an official match so um, i think i think it's 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 a bit of an advantage yeah and you you point out something very very interesting here tim and um this is this is basically about competitiveness of the league right vadim i mean we've covered the ukrainian premier league now very closely for many years and i feel like every year we cover that competitiveness has gone down a notch now, um, Dinamo and Schachter are still two very good sides. And Schachter, of course, um, is the side that also can compete in Europe um, to a large extent. Dinamo has done well in Europe as well in the last few years. But um, John Moritz did not used to be a side that would go and face Schachter and just be overrode like this. I, I, I watched the game as well and I thought, wow, there's, there was a, a, the stadium was very empty and B, um, they, the Chernomorets was not up to the competitive edge that Schachter need on a, on a day to day, um, basis, right? So the competitiveness is a huge issue right now in Ukraine, isn't it, uh, Vadim? Well, absolutely. And speaking of Chernomorets, I mean, this is a team that used to be a regular in the, in the group stages of the Europa League or UEFA Cup back then, if not in the playoff rounds. And now, you know, as Tim just said, that playing against, uh, Shakhtar is like a training match for Shakhtar. So how much of an advantage is it really? Mm. I think still a bit because no matter what, it is a competitive match. And I think for Shakhtar, it's also just kind of a confidence builder, especially Modulus looked very, very sharp. He was involved in all five goals, uh, two goals and three assists. Yeah, so that, the assistant Kovalenko was magnificent. Yeah. So this is, it's never, it's obviously not going to be detrimental. So it is still an advantage over Russian teams, but I just wouldn't put too much stock into it just because of how uncompetitive the Ukrainian Premier League is these days. Mm. And that's really so unfortunate because I remember just in 2013 when I was living in, in Ukraine, um, this used to be such a great league to watch, right? Just the, the very top. You had four teams at the very top. 
that were highly competitive with um, Shakhtar Donetsk, of course, Dynamo Kiev, but Metalist Kharkiv and, and Dnipro. And we we're going to go into some of the, the structural issues in a moment, right? With all the things that have happened in Ukraine, with the league, etc. Because there's a, there's a lot to go through um, when we talk about Ukrainian football these days. Um, do you think... You know, there's also the, the Dynamo, of course, played Olympic Donetsk, a team that's currently playing in Kiev. Um, do you think for those two teams, seeing this league getting weaker and weaker around them, how much is hurting in that, the two big ones, um, Vadim? Well, they're hurting financially, obviously. Well, with Shakhtar, they haven't played in Donetsk in three years. And Dynamo, I mean, the crowds, the crowds are just embarrassing at this point something around 2000 people showed up at the last game i think and once again you know you know to to repeat competitiveness when four years ago you said it yourself metalista dnipro were also european class teams and you play intense matches in the domestic league every week that's obviously going to help you on the european front and now it's it's kind of it's just sad to watch now olympic donetsk is basically another kiev team um, Stal Kamenske is another Kiev team, even though they're not even in the conflict zone, they just don't have a stadium. Veres mm. Rivne uh, is playing in Lviv, also not in a conflict zone, just stadium problems. And the rest of them are just empty week after week. Yeah, that's, it's, it's really too bad. Um, I want to, I want to stick with Dinamo, um, because Dinamo and Dinamo and Schachter are the, the two top teams in the league right now. Um, and Dinamo have improved quite a bit from last season, haven't they? Where they, last season, I think the gap was 14 points between Schachter and Dinamo currently. It's, it's three, but we're going to talk about the, the, the actual gap between the two. What do you make of this Dinamo side right now, Vadim? Um, the team does look better under Hatsevich this season than it did under Reprov last season. But at the same time, the Yamolenkos, of course, now gone to Dortmund. Um, there's some interesting players in that side. Sihankov is one of them who, who I want to highlight as one of the players to watch actually in that region entirely. Um, Tim mentioned the other one, Viktor Kovalenko, another young star that is is going to make headways very soon in a big league. But what do you make of this Dynamo side right now? Well, first of all, I, I wouldn't really overstate how much they've improved because at this stage last season, after 19 matches, they had two points more. It's just that Shakhtar are eight points worse than where they were. So the gap does look smaller, but that's because Shakhtar have been you know, kind of dropping points unexpectedly. And not because they're not by far superior. It's just because I think they've been focused far more on the Champions League than on the, than on the domestic league. Uh, as for improvement, I do think it's an improvement over last season, but Rebrov's last season was fairly disastrous. Mm. So that's not really saying much. Hatskevich is a man. He's more he's more uh, willing to experiment tactically and try different formations. But when you're playing, you know, when when half your matches are basically training matches, it doesn't take you know it doesn't take a lot of courage to play some players out of position. Andrew, we talk about Shakhtar Donetsk all the time, and I think Vadim is quite right. Do you think it's because of the Champions League focus? I mean, they've been they've been fantastic in the Champions League. Well, they have really, and I, I think the the point that Vadim is making about the the standard of the other matches is is kind of a strange challenge really to have because the to be able to keep that level so high for most of their group stage campaign when they're not really being tested at home is that's actually pretty difficult. That's a psychological strength that um, you know. You, I mean, Vadim mentions you mentioned Vadim the the drop perhaps of Shakhtar compared to last season. And it's, I mean, not that I watched them week in, week out, but what I would say that they possibly have done better is, well, I say better, but they've managed the, the two campaigns sort of sustainably. I know the gap is close to Dynamo Kiev, but I'd say that they must, they'll still be confident of going into the championship round anyway. Um, and having got through to the Champions League knockout stages, I'd say they're sort of balancing it reasonably well. Um, but it's then it then it comes down to you know what what is their priority? I mean, getting into Champions League surely is the only real challenge left for them now, um, other than just getting over Dynamo Kiev because the rest of the league, like we've mentioned, is is not really offering up much for challenge. But I, I'm impressed with the how they've dealt with two campaigns together. 
Um, and really, I mean the Champions League there, but to cope them both together and still be top of the table is, I think in itself, is reasonably impressive. Yeah, the quick, I think one yeah. more factor to mention, and it's that, you know, a lot for for some of the Brazilian players like Marlos, Shakhtar, I think they view it as a stepping stone to a bigger European club. Mm-hmm. And yeah. they will be noticed in the Champions League by the bigger European teams. The bigger European teams are not going to watch Shakhtar versus Olympic Donetsk. <laughs> so I think there's less of an incentive to put in as much of an effort in these matches. But there's also a yeah, danger I... there, right? Sorry? There's also a big danger there because what happens if Shakhtar now go out in the in the Champions League against Roma? I mean, that's we put this down as a 50-50 game. What happens then, right? Can you motivate the players for the rest of the season to, I don't know, beat up on Forskla, Poltava, Veres Rivne, Mariupol, Alexandria and all these other teams? How do you keep motivating them? I mean, that's an excellent question, but I think the gap in quality is so high, and especially if you don't have the Champions League to look forward to anymore, I think Shakhtar can still you know, walk the league even if they get even if they get eliminated by Roma, even though the, the gap between Dinamo is not as big as it was last season. Yeah, it's, that's an, it's, a, it's a question that's been burning in my mind. What's going to happen if they do go out? And I mean, Andrew, uh, sorry, Tim, there is a good chance that they will because you were one of the people on my poll that voted for Roma. Shame <laughs> on you. <laughs> traitor Uh, (laughs) but um i mean there is that's a realistic proposition i was i went on the roma podcast the other day and um, i talked to roma to do the the roma specialists over there and um they're not too confident that they will go through but at the same time roma are a good side right so there is a good chance that shachter could go out in this match and tim how do you then deal with that It's, it's that's just such a difficult question isn't it I don't think it's actually a difficult question, Manu, because, uh, like my Jim said, the, the quality, the difference in quality is so big that they don't really have to try much. Half of Marlos is better than the whole league, probably. You know, it's 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 it's, it's just the, the the issue is just like the difference in quality between between Shakhtar, Dinamo, Kiev, and then the rest of the league. So with the, what's the eight point league, eight point gap right now, even they don't have to really try too much. So I think really like the, the quality will allow them just to run away with the, the, the league without really trying so so hard. So just, yeah, we just can hope that they can uh, go past Roma and continue that focus mm-hmm. on Champions League. Uh, but it should be, should, shouldn't be an issue for them. Like just the side is so strong. Now the, the gap is actually much smaller right now, Tim. It's only three points, but um, I think there is there is a case to be made there because we we have to talk a bit about the format as well, right, Vadim? Because the, the the one issue that we have faced since covering this league, we went from um, I believe it was sixteen clubs, right, to fourteen to twelve. What happened there? And I mean, the big reason for that is the conflict in the Donbas. Uh, it's kind of hard not talking about the Ukrainian Premier League without the conflict in the Donbass. Um, of course, this, this started all in the winter of 2013, right? Um, 2013-2014 ended up with Crimea falling in Russia's hand, the Donbass being um, occupied by Russian separatists, forcing Shakhtar Donetsk, Olympic Donetsk, um, a bunch of other teams that don't exist anymore into exile, um, talk us a little bit through this. What's been going on in the last really three years in, in a quick overview? Well, so immediately after that, you lose two Crimean teams, the Octavria Simferopol and, and FC Sevastopol. Octavria have been in the Premier League since the beginning. They're actually the only team other than Dinamo and Shakhtar to win a Ukrainian title. So those two right away. As for the rest... I think that this is the biggest symptom of having having a league that's based entirely on oligarchical football is that when, you know, the economic crisis that has also been a result of this conflict has also, you know, taken a toll on on the fortunes of these oligarchs and if they're no longer able to, you know, or willing to fund these teams, then they really have almost no way of survival. Like Dinamo and Shakhtar are still okay because of, you know, Surkis and Akhmetov are still willing to fund these clubs, but even teams as big as Dnipro and, and Metalist. And Dnipro were Europa League finalists not that long ago. And now, now they're like three different Dnipro teams and none of them are playing in the Premier League. Dnipro, a great example. I'm glad you brought that up though, because they were owned by Kolomoisky, right? 
And um, I believe Kolomoisky had his hands in four different teams in Ukraine. So this, you're not talking about one oligarch taking down one club, but he, basically when he decided um, this is it, I, I'm no longer interested in football. It wasn't just Nepro that went down, but it was a bunch of other teams as well. So you mentioning the the term oligarchs, the, the, the symptom is oligarchs. And this is something that we're seeing to a certain extent in Russia as well. And then, of course, in, in a different podcast that we do in the Bundesliga podcast, we, we covered recently the, the influence of investors in football and what happens if they're gone and why, why it's maybe not a bad idea for clubs not to be owned by investors. Because this is a really good example of what happens if you have multiple ownership, if you have oligarchs running teams, what happens if they lose their interest, right? For whatever reason, because things happen in the world. And I mean, this, this Nepo case makes, is a really interesting example, isn't it, Vadim? Yeah. And I think, uh, Metalis Harkiv is just as interesting because the, the owner that had previously, that had just purchased them, uh, after the conflict started, basically, he was a big Yanukovych ally and fled to Moscow, but still retained control of the team, but wasn't investing in the team at all. And then eventually everything fell apart and they got relegated. Uh, and it's, you know, Ukraine is a great case study of what happens when you rely too much on oligarchs. A lot of Ukrainian teams just don't know how to survive without that, mm. you know, without, without that cash being guaranteed. They don't know how to sell players. They don't know how to, you know, unlike a lot of teams in, uh, in other parts of Eastern Europe who survive by developing youth players and then selling them on for a profit, Ukrainian teams just don't really know how to do that. Yeah, I remember when I, when I lived in, and in Kiev and I was, uh, I, I used to go to a, <laughs> the team doesn't think they're now in the third division, Arsenal Kiev. And, uh, they were playing in the Dynamo stadium, in the Lobanovsky stadium in, in downtown Kiev. And it was like, they were playing in the Ukrainian Premier League, Vadim, but they averaged maybe a thousand five hundred people. And yet they had a former Ghanaian national team player playing for them. They had all these players on the field and, uh, you could just walk down to the field right after and just chat to the players because there was no barricades. It was it was basically like my amateur football team around the corner in Germany. And this this just when I remember seeing that, and then you see you go to this team and you you watch your local football. I paid my one euro to get my ticket on the black market, right? And <laughs> it's it's really it's really ridiculous. And then at the same time, you had uh Nepro, Schachter, Metalisk. Uh, Dynamo Kiev just next door playing in these like super fancy modern arenas. It was just, it was so, so bizarre seeing this and it's just so imbalanced, right? It seemed like the league was kind of put together on a crooked foundation and that's, that's a really big danger, isn't it, Vadim? It is, absolutely. But even then, you still had teams like, we you know, we mentioned them earlier. Uh, Chodna Moritz was also, you know, mm. they're not the kind of team that lost 5-0 to Shakhtar without barely putting up a fight. Back when Hryorchuk uh, was their manager, they all you know were were somewhat competitive in in Europe as well. So that's uh you know five five solid teams. That you know compared to some other leagues in Europe, that that makes for a fairly competitive league, I think. Yeah. Even though there's yeah. a huge financial imbalance, it was still it was entertaining to watch. Metalis Dnipro matches were you know those are those are the other that's the other great rivalry in Ukrainian football. Those were always intense, always packed stadiums, and now they're they're playing each other in the third division. But it's not even really the teams. It's something that kind of rose out of the ashes. Mm. It is something that's interesting because when, when we cover Russian football quite a bit, Andrew, right? And we see this, we see some of the same symptoms there, don't we? Well, yeah, exactly. I mean, I, I would, I would pick out, um, Kuban Krasadar just off the top of my head, really. I mean, in Krasadar, that was the makings of what could have been a brilliant, um, city rivalry, which Russian football just doesn't have. And I actually believe that. Those are the sort of matches that that make a league truly competitive, make a league grow. Mm -hmm. I mean, you know, Vadim mentions there really well that although there was the financial gap, there were still enough competitive teams to make the league itself, uh, you know, fairly healthy. And you know, the, the amount of uncertainty in Russian football right up to the very top level, um, I can't speak with authority about quite how deep the problems are in Ukraine, but I... I'd, I'd wager that, based on what Vadim is saying, they're fairly significant. That you know the the problems are fairly similar, and mm. I just I can't for life me understand why 
and maybe this is the idealist in me, but I can't understand why some fairly simple, rigid laws about ownership of of clubs cannot be implemented. I mean, you know, it's I, I bet that's probably idealistic or yeah. be realistic. Because the status quo is 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 held by people whose interests are served and those interests are not the same as the fans and the clubs and the, the players. I mean, don't forget the players. We're talking here. Um, I talked in about well, Fenel just for a very brief moment. Luchenegir Vladivostok is an example. They couldn't pay their players for about three or four months in the autumn part of the season. And the players at one point, and we're talking a club who were in the Premier League 10 years ago, and players couldn't afford the rent for their houses. Because um, many of these players do not, they've come from a long way away. They're only mm-hmm. going to rent. They couldn't afford their rent. They had to live in the club's training ground, which itself couldn't afford the electricity. Fans had to bring them food because they just to eat food. I mean, we're talking second tier of the biggest country in the world. And that level of mismanagement is barely an eyes battered about it. Yeah. I mean, the, the, how deep the problems go in Ukraine, again, Vadim will be far better place to say about that. But it, it, it's not a big stretch to imagine that similar depth of problems are there and why people don't do something about it, why it cannot, more cannot be done. I, I don't know, maybe I get idealistic sometimes. It's the, the when you when you look at the black book of of European football, right? Um, Ukraine is always mentioned in that, right? This is this is something that that we have talked about actually in the past, and I think we've even done articles on this, right, Vadim? Um, the black book of Europe, unpaid players, um, the way taxes are structured in Ukrainian football doesn't help either. And I mean, we always laugh about the Chevchenko case, and he was a minimum wage in Ukraine at one point, right? Because he. He, Dinamo paid him via a tax haven. So you have all that kind of stuff going on. And I mean, this is, this is structurally speaking. I think this goes back to the fall of the Soviet Union. That's something that we discussed as well. Um, Tim, remember the fall of the Soviet Union podcast that we did? Yeah. yeah, yeah. Um, a lot of these structural issues that you see similar problems in Ukraine and Russia because they, they have the same root base. It's the Soviet Union. When the Soviet Union collapsed, you basically had oligarchs and, um, or owners or individuals take over clubs basically on a whim. They were able to do so because when, when ownership disappears, and in this case, the ownership is the state. And I, and when, when I wrote my PhD dissertation on this, um, particularly, the, 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 in, in Russia, it was almost a bit more structured. So you have some of the same symptoms in Russia, but not quite as bad as you have in, in Ukraine. Because Ukraine became an independent state, which means the government not only disappeared, the government was all of a sudden in a different country, right? So it made it really easy for teams like Dynamo Kiev that were previously owned directly by the government to fall into the hands of business people. Same with Shachter Donetsk. And Shachter Donetsk, remember, that the first owner of Shachter Donetsk was blown up in his VIP box, right? And killed in what was considered mafia conflicts. And... Um, it was only after that that Rinat Akhmetov was able to take over the club. Of course, those two are not connected, but it's, it just shows you the dimensions of what was happening in Ukraine. And, um, that's, that's really fascinating. And so I think that the case in Ukraine with the, the foundation that was put on, it was put on a foundation that was made by really quick money and it caused a huge imbalance in the sense that really teams um, were, were pumped up almost like on steroid with this money that was brought in by oligarchs. And the moment the country hit a, an economic obstacle, that person just deflated, that the entire league just deflated because these oligarchs deflated and the money wasn't real. It wasn't there. So only really one or two teams uh, have enough income to be sustainable. And even those two teams are now struggling. Dynamo Kiev, we, we're going to talk about Dynamo Kiev in just a moment, quite a bit more. They are a team that had huge financial problems, and this was the reason why they actually ended up finally selling Yamolenko to Borussia Dortmund, is because they have huge financial problems caused by all these economic uncertainties going on in the country. And then you add the conflict, and all of a sudden you have a league that's standing on very crooked legs. And I, I think that is, is, is fascinating to, to watch, but it's also very sad because I always really enjoyed this league. And I, I mean, I still enjoy watching Shakhtar Donetsk and Dynamo Kiev, but um, this league used to be a league where we had several big games and you could just watch them and you think, wow, this is fantastic stuff. This is great to watch. And the stadiums had decent atmosphere and 
yeah, it's just, it was, it was different. And now, um, of course, these, there's so many issues and we're going to talk about one issue in particular right now, but because the conflict that we've mentioned so many times has also affected a lot of clubs, but it also recently led Dynamo Kiev to not play against a game against Mariupol that are close to the conflict zone. Can you just talk us through this? Because this has just been going through the CAS. What happened exactly there? How will this impact the league? How will this impact Dynamo Kiev? And how, what, what can we take away from this entire thing? Sure. Uh, I'll try to give a kind of a brief overview. So this all started back in June. Um, when it, when, uh, Mariupol got promoted, uh, they've been playing in the, in the first league for the past two seasons. Uh, Carpate and Dinamo both announced that they wouldn't play in Mariupol because of the, their proximity to the conflict zone. Carpate eventually relented, but Dinamo and Surkis decided to stick to their guns and absolutely categorically refused to go. Now, Mariupol is fairly close to the conflict zone. Uh, I think there's something like 25 miles away. And three, four years ago, there was, you know, it was actually the scene of fighting, but that is not the case. The, you know, the city is kind of like a, there's a sense of normalcy there. There are festivals there, there are concerts there. You know, Okeanerzi, the, the most famous Ukrainian rock band, have visited there. Poroshenko has visited there. So for the biggest club in Ukraine, and the one that always says how patriotic it is to refuse to travel, was kind of viewed as an insult by many, including Mariupol itself. So what, what happened next then? Um, because the, the Ukrainian Premier League pretty much ordered Dinamo to play there, right? Yeah, they, so Dinamo guaranteed concrete security. Like they basically said, we will not go unless you can guarantee perfect security. And in what world and in what stadium anywhere in the world can you actually guarantee perfect security? It's impossible. Mm. You know, it's, it's just not a realistic request. And then, so they did not receive these guarantees of safety. And uh, the National Security Service of Ukraine and the Ministry of the Interior said, yeah, you know, it might be kind of dangerous to play. But they never prohibited the match from going from taking place. But nevertheless, Dinamo didn't show up. Uh, the disciplinary committee of the Ukrainian Premier League uh, awarded uh, Mariupol the technical victory. Then Dinamo appealed to the uh, uh, appellate committee of the Fed Football Federation of Ukraine, again lost, and then finally took it to the Court of Arbitration for Sport, which is the decision that was just made yesterday. And Dinamo once again lost. So basically, when I look at the table now, and I, I copy pasted this table in, in our agenda. Um, it says Dinamo Kiev have 19 games, right? And that is the, the, the missing one game because that is the game against Mariupol. Yeah. So once that gets added, because I guess this, the, the decision has been made, it's been reported, uh, they've, uh, there's been a media release, mm. but they haven't, it's not been officially implemented yet. So that's why the table still hasn't been updated. But once it's updated, that's going to say 20 matches, but there won't be any points added. And then Mariupol, I assume, will get the, the three extra points from... Mariupol will get the three extra points. And you know, so, so this is interesting, because now, with Mariupol getting the three extra points, they will most likely qualify for the championship round. Mm. Because the six top teams in Ukraine qualify for the championship round, and then all play each other again. So when we'll have a situation where Dynamo Kiev will, again, have <laughs> to travel to Mariupol. Wow. What a drama, huh? Wow. Yeah, but what do you make of that? And I'm going to go straight to you, Tim, because you say, yeah, what a drama. But um, the government says this is safe, right? All the other teams have gone and played there. And Dinamo is an interesting case because they say they're the most patriotic club in Ukraine. And then we have the example of Shakhtar Donetsk being accused of not patri being patriotic um, by fans, including in Kharkiv. But yet they have gone and played there. What do you make of that? Well, it's there's more politics than actual football, so it's I shouldn't be the the person who should be talking about that because I just really don't don't know enough. But yeah, it's it's really like a, that's what fascinates me. Like if they yeah if if they qualify for championship round and there's another game, so what are they gonna do? Are they gonna go to to Lausanne as well and uh, try to figure that out? That's interesting. Uh, Vadim, I have a question for you. Like I watched yesterday the Ukrainian TV show called Pro Football. And uh, Surki said that they had nine letters from the Federation saying that it's not safe to play there. But at the same time, you say you say that it's, you know, people go there and safe. Could you please talk a little bit about about that? Like what was what kind of like he said some nine letters, um, you know, prohibiting them to go there. 
you know anything about that? Yeah, so there there are some letters from the Ministry of the Interior, and one of the issues actually was that the the match was supposed to take place on Ukrainian Independence Day, so they thought maybe there'd be a higher level, you know, high, higher security risk just because of that, and that was one of the issues. But all of these letters, none of them actually prohibited the match from taking place. And After all, it was like a recommendation, yeah. Yeah, it was a recommendation, or you know, you should have heightened security. Which is obvious you should, you know, mm. it's a football match, it's Dinamo Kiev playing in Mariupol, but nothing prohibited it. And so Dinamo actually, like, they, they had a decent legal case because of this evidence, but really because of the fact that the match was never prohibited from taking place, they had no grounds to refuse to go. And when the Court of Arbitration for Sport looks at this decision, they don't go to Mariupol and see, is it safe, is it not safe to play there? <laughs> they see if the Football Federation of Ukraine made the correct decision according to their own regulations, which they did. And everyone else played there, right? Everyone else has played there for the past three seasons. That's what makes it ridiculous. Yeah. So They're, I think they, they made themselves a target just by starting to talk about all of this. Otherwise, no one would have even considered any, you know, this to be a big deal. And was there any issues in the past three years uh, when playing in Mariupol? No, nothing. Oh. I mean, this is this is an interesting one because we had a similar issue of Odessa a couple of years ago, right, where there was bombings in Odessa and they had to, the city wasn't deemed safe to play. And then they they said, okay, well now it's safe to play here again. And uh, Schachter even moved some of the games there, um, and no one protested that. It's interesting that now with Mariupol. All of a sudden, Dinamo case, Dinamo Kiva making such a big case out of this. And I'm really curious, Vadim, what do you think? What's going to happen if Mariupol get into the championship round and Dinamo have to go there again? Are Dinamo going to do this entire, are they going to go through this entire spiel again? I sincerely hope not. And actually, so back, back in November, right before the decision of the, uh, Football Federation of Ukraine was made about their appeal, Dinamo actually offered Hey, we've changed our mind. Actually, we'll go. And at that point, they needed the they needed every single other club to agree for that to happen. And Mariupol and Mariupol are very much in Shakhtar's sphere of influence. Mm. You know, half their starting eleven are loanees from Shakhtar. So Mariupol, you know, they they did not really want to do Dynamo a favor and said absolutely not. Yeah, that brings us into um, this is something maybe that we need to mention, right? What team they? The sphere of influence. Uh, I wrote an article many years ago and I called it uh, uh, the Ukrainian Premier League, the equivalent of Game of Thrones with uh, different houses controlling different teams. And you can almost put different teams on the map in Ukraine and you know which, by, by looking the, at the logo, you know which team, uh, which clan controls which part of the country, right? And so that is very much the case here because Shakhtar, you're saying Shakhtar Donetsk is sphere of, sphere of influence. And pretty much all the teams in the East are under Shakhtar Donetsk's influence in one way or another because they, they're not all owned by the same person, Rinat Akhmetov, but they, they, they're sort of like a political economic clan, aren't they? Yeah, they're very, very close economic links. I'm sure if you dig deeper, you can find that, you know, Mariupol is somehow directly, directly or indirectly connected to Akhmetov. And Zorel Luhansk is another example, yeah. but Zorel Luhansk and Shakhtar have actually I think had a bit of a falling out recently and Zorea is trying to go its own way and not be so reliant on, on loaned out players from Shakhtar. But that's a, that's a different subject altogether. Yeah. But the owner, Yevon Heller is still very deeply linked in with Rinat Ahmetov at the same time. Yeah. I think it's more of a sporting, you know, kind of a, a sporting decision. Zorea's manager wants to build his own club, build his own legacy and not, mm. doesn't want to be remembered just as the, the guy that had Shakhtar players play in the Europa League as a kind of a feeder club to Shakhtar. Yeah, it's a, it's an interesting one because, so you, assuming from that, given the fact that Dinamo in the end more or less fell, stumbled over their own decision not to go because uh, politics then basically prohibited them to go after all, I, we can pretty much assume that they're not going to make that mistake twice, right? And that the championship round, they're going to go and just play there. And uh, because at that stage, there they will be important three points on the line. Yeah, absolutely. And I also just want to point out the absurdity of the situation. So Dinamo, the whole reason this starts is that Dinamo refused to go to Mariupol. This goes all the way to the Court of Arbitration for Sport because they uh, they received a technical defeat, lost three points. And then the arbitrators are then deciding 
should we uphold this decision or should we allow Dinamo to go play this match in Mariupol? And the entire reason, once again, that this affair started is because they refused to play. And the case is Dinamo Kiev against the Football Federation of Ukraine. And two of Dinamo Kiev's main witnesses against the Football Federation of Ukraine are vice presidents of the Football Federation of Ukraine. So how do you think the arbitrators in Lausanne are looking at this situation? Uh, sports and politics. And just, it's just, <laughs> it's just, it's just, it's just <laughs> wow. I, I love this topic and I don't think we're going to have seen the end of that yet, Vadim, right? So, uh, I think you I, have. I hope we do, but I don't think so. No, either. no, I know. There's nowhere else to go. You can't appeal this any farther. Yeah, but we might have another case and by the time the championship rounds comes around, right? So, um, I think you are writing an article on this for footballgrad.com, if I remember correctly. Yes, as soon as as soon as CAS publishes the full decision, so yeah, we'll dig a little deep into it. Definitely. So we'll keep an eye out on that. Uh, unfortunately, boys, we're up. We're up. The time is up on this podcast. But fantastic stuff. And um, Vadim, we're going to have you back and talk more about this case because this is an interesting case. And hopefully, this case, as you said, is closed. But we'll, we'll see. Keep an eye on it. What happens with uh, Dinamo? If they're gonna go once the championship round comes around, the championship round starts in two match days. Uh, match day 21, 22 are going to be in the regular season and then they're splitting up the league into a championship round of six teams and a relegation round of six teams. And it, Mariupol looks very likely to be into this, in this round I, now. Yeah. It, would, it would be ironic if the only reason they get into the round is because of the three points yeah. that they got awarded. <laughs> and it would be very ironic, which of course then would mean that they have this, this whole, Tool episode will happen once again. Um, boys, that's it. We're, we're basically done. But Vadim, um, thank you so much for coming on. Where can people find you online? Um, what have you been up to? This is the floor is you to pluck yourself. Uh, well, you can find me on Football Grad. That's, uh, that's basically exclusively it at the moment. Uh, my Twitter handle is, uh, vfirmanov. Not very creative. And that's about the only place you can find me. No, that's, that's enough. That's the only place you need, you need to be found. Uh, football grad exclusive always sounds very nice. Um, Tim, how about you? What have you been up to? Um, in terms of football, I'm also football grad exclusive because I do, don't do anything else with football. But, um, yeah, but the people can find me on my, on Twitter, Russian Tim 61 and Rocket from Russia where they can see pictures of, I don't know, me and my band and other stuff. <laughs> yeah, it's and of course Thursday Spartak Spartak will score 5 past Bilbao and will make it to the next round see how optimistic I am yeah. <laughs> I, I need to point out it's 7.41 in the morning at the, the west coast so Tim has not been drinking and he's no, no, absolutely serious water. about this <laughs> <laughs> Andrew how about you what have you been up to I know you're heading to uh, Moscow um, and then St. Petersburg in, in 12 hours time yeah, no, that's that's in the the immediate future. By the time this is out, I'll be probably on my way. Um, but yeah, just it's, it's it's always the same. I look forward to the regular season getting back again, and we're finally back into European action. So previews go on football grad, and um, and hopefully uh, longer term, I'll be firming up my plans for the World Cup itself. But I'll be on the ground. I won't be going two games as a reporter, but I'll certainly be on the ground. Hopefully, hopefully meet up with you, Manu, at some point. Um, but uh, in the meantime, yeah, it's uh, Zenit Celtic reporting live from there. Yeah, looking forward to that. Well, I've been your host, Manu F. You can find me on Twitter, uh, at Manuel Weff, and you can find this content, the article that Vadim is going to do, all the previews on the Europa League, the Champions League, um, articles on the Bundesliga, articles on Ukrainian football, on Russian football, etc., 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 at Football Grad Live. And yeah, also, if you, if you like what we do, give us a follow on iTunes. You can find this podcast on iTunes. And of course, feedback, criticism, any questions that you have, please, um, shoot them our ways. We're always interested to discuss them. Well, that's it from Neil. Um, until next week, das wird dann hier.
It wouldn't be the holiday season if there wasn't candy, right? Celebrate the holiday season with the Holiday Crush. They've sprinkled candy with a holiday theme and fun-packed challenges every week for five whole weeks, finishing on January 4th. The more challenges you complete, the better your chances of unwrapping delicious rewards. So, are you ready to crush the holidays? Play the Holiday Crush now. Download it from the App Store, Google Play, or Windows Store for free. Terms and conditions apply. Thank you for listening to Believe. You can show support to your host by subscribing to the show and giving us a five-star rating on your preferred platform. Check us out at Believe.com and search for B-L-E-A-V on YouTube.